to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Oftentimes, science and the Bible are being pitted against each other, and, and we hear things like, well, science has disproven the Bible. Though the Bible is not a book of science, no scientific observation in the Bible contradicts known scientific evidence. So there is no conflict between what is true science and the Bible. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in a message titled, And God Said. Now here's Pastor Brian. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, of course, Paul is a Jew. He's, he's writing in that context, you know, his, his background as a Jew. Scripture meant one thing and one thing only to the Jews. It meant those sacred books that they had that had been handed down from Moses all the way down through the prophets. Everybody was clear about what the Scriptures were. And then, of course, added to the Old Testament revelation, the New Testament also began to develop at this time, and so the New Testament would be included. But it is a very straightforward statement that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, we have good arguments to support the biblical claim to divine inspiration But not only do we have arguments to support the claim, the Bible itself has built-in evidence that the claim is accurate. And so let's first of all look at some of the arguments in support of divine inspiration. Now, these things don't prove divine inspiration, but they, they bolster the case and they also clear up a lot of confusion and misconception that people have about the Bible. So I want to give you four things that support the biblical claim to divine inspiration. Things that that support, you look at that claim and then you bring these other things alongside of it and you see, okay, yeah, these things lend themselves to the biblical claim. The first is the indestructibility of the Bible. Now, this is absolutely an amazing thing. Not all of us are aware of this, but if you do a little bit of study in history, church history, and so forth, you will find that several times over throughout history, there have been major attempts to do away with the scriptures, to abolish them, to destroy them, to rid the world of the Bible. The Bible is, as a matter of fact, the object of more persecution and opposition than any other book in history. But yet, here we are tonight, and I think almost everybody in this room probably has a Bible with them. So we see the indestructibility of the Bible. And again, it's not just that you know, people are, are passively ignoring the Scriptures. People have actively opposed them and sought to destroy them. 
But here's an interesting fact. It's a very small number of books that survive or remain in circulation for 100 years. The number that survived for 1,000 years is minute. I mean, how, how many books do you have on your shelf at home that are 1,000 years old? You know, not many, do you? The Bible, of course, would probably be the only one. But even books that are 100 years old, you know, books are written today, and after a couple of years, they generally go out of print. They're no longer even being circulated. There are the classics that you can, you know, you can still go down to Borders or one of these places, and you can get the Penguin classics or, you know, they're available, but they're very few in number. But here's the Bible, the oldest book in the world. Now, don't let anybody ever tell you that that isn't true. You know, people say, oh, no, no, the Sanskrit, the Hindu scriptures, all of that, you know, that's all much, much older. No, it's not. How could it be? The Bible goes back to the very beginning of time. The Bible's the oldest book in the world. And here's the amazing thing. The oldest book in the world is today, at the beginning of the 21st century, the best-selling book in the world, still, to this very day. So astounding with all of the, uh, you know, I mentioned a few weeks ago going into some of these bookshops when I'm in the airports and looking at all the books in there that are written against the Bible, against God, against the Christian faith. And yet, just like all of those other books, they're all going to go out of print eventually. They're going to end up in the dustbin of history, just as was the case with Voltaire. Maybe you remember the story where he declared that within a short period of time, Christianity would be forever uh, obliterated from memory and from history, and the Bible would be forever done away with, and this was his boast and his claim. And ironically, a short time after he died, they took over his home and turned it into a print shop, and guess what book they were printing in Voltaire's home? They were printing the Bible. So the indestructibility of the Bible, you know, it does say something. How come, with, with all of the effort, going back even pre-New Testament, the, the different people that conquered the Jews that sought to destroy the Scriptures, looking at what happened with the Romans and some of the emperors seeking to destroy the scriptures, looking at what happened with the Muslims and how they sought to destroy the scriptures, and right on through the communists and right on up to the very present time. So we have the indestructibility of the Bible. Secondly, we have the historical veracity of the Bible. You know, has anybody ever said to you, well, you know, I don't believe the Bible. It's, it's full of all kinds of mistakes. Years ago, I distinctly remember having taught one night and two or three young guys came up to me afterward. I'd never seen them before, and evidently they were there for reasons other than to really seek the Lord. And they came up sort of mockingly, and, you know, they said something to the effect that they didn't agree with what I had said. And they said, and, you know, as everybody knows, the Bible is full of mistakes. And I said, really? The Bible is full of mistakes? I, oh, yeah, yeah, it's full of mistakes. The guy didn't have a Bible. I said, well here, I've got a Bible. Why don't you show me a mistake? Well, I, you know, I don't know which. I know it's full of mistakes. So, well, okay, can you just show me one? Well, you know, I'm not prepared to do that tonight. I, you know, so a lot of times people will come off with that sort of a thing. 
But the fact of the matter is, when the Bible speaks historically, it speaks with 100% accuracy. And all of the claims throughout history that the Bible has been wrong about this, that, and the other thing, given enough time, it has been proven over and over again that no, the archaeologists were wrong, or the scientists were wrong, or the historians were wrong, and actually, the Bible was right. I read an article several years ago in Time Magazine that summed it up best in regard to the historical veracity of the Bible. It said this, after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived and is perhaps better for the siege. Even on the critics' own terms, historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than they did when the rationalists began their attack. So the next time somebody tells you the Bible is not accurate historically, the burden of proof is on their shoulders, and nobody ever in history has proven a historical discrepancy in the Bible. People have alleged historical discrepancies, but nobody's ever proven a historical discrepancy. And then we have the argument of the scientific veracity of the Bible. Now today, you know, we live in a climate today where oftentimes science and the Bible are being pitted against each other, and and we hear things like, well, science has disproven the Bible. Though the Bible is not a book of science, no scientific observation in the Bible contradicts known scientific evidence. So there is no conflict between what is true science and the Bible. Every other ancient religion had certain unscientific views about things like astronomy, medicine, hygiene. The Bible is absolutely free from those kinds of scientific absurdities. As a matter of fact, 3,500 years ago, Moses said this. He said, the life of all flesh is in the blood. Scientists discovered that in the 17th century. The life of all flesh is in the blood. You can read that over and over again in the law, especially in the book of Leviticus. 3,000 years ago, David said that the sun is moving in a circuit through the heavens. Astronomers discovered that in the early 1900s. 2,000 years ago, Paul the Apostle stated that creation is in bondage to decay. And this has become known scientifically as the second law of thermodynamics, which was realized in 1850. So, you see, far from there being a conflict between science and the Bible, there is no true scientific fact that is contradicted by the scriptures. And then, Fourthly, we have the unity of the Bible. Now, we sort of take this for granted because, of course, we all have our Bibles and we know the Bible's made up of 66 books and so forth. And we we realize to some degree that it was written by various authors. But I think it sometimes escapes us how amazing this really is. But the unity of the Bible is, if it's not miraculous, it's just this side of miraculous. Think about this. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors. 
on three different continents at least over a 1,600-year period of time, maybe even longer than that. If you go back and if you think of the early chapters of Genesis actually having maybe been written by Adam and by Abraham and some of them, which is, is quite possible. But anyway, over this long, long period of time, 40 different authors, in many ways completely disconnected from one another, different parts of the world, and yet there is an amazing harmony in this book. You know, having read through it, it's one book. It's 66 books, but somehow it's one book. It has one doctrinal system, one moral standard, one plan of salvation, one program of the ages. It is unparalleled in history in this regard. Even today, if you got a a number of authors who were from a similar culture, similar educational background, similar time and so forth, and ask them to write on just a few maybe semi-controversial topics, you would have such differences of opinion. But here there's this consistency all the way through. So these things, the unity of the Bible, the indestructibility of the Bible, the historical and the scientific veracity of the Bible, these are the things that support the biblical claim to salvation. They don't prove it, but they lend support to it. But here's the wonderful thing. God hasn't left us with just those things. As amazing as those things are, and there are many others that we don't have time to look at, but God, in his wisdom, built into the scriptures themselves, he built in the proof of divine inspiration. And this is how he did it. Listen to Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. The Lord speaking, he said, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Predictive prophecy is the built-in proof that this book is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. There's no other religious book in the world with predictive prophecy like we have in the Bible. None. There's not even a close second. Because, of course, the Bible is filled with thousands of prophecies. And these prophecies are very specific. They're very detailed regarding time and place and, and even sometimes the smallest events. We hear today about different so-called fortune tellers and psychics who can let us know about the future, and we've heard much about the prophecies of Nostradamus and so forth. And when you look at those things, you find that there's not even a comparison with the Scriptures. They're vague. They're general. You could interpret them in a dozen different possible ways, but when it comes to the Scriptures, it's very detailed. It's very specific. So predictive prophecy is the built-in proof of the Bible's claim to be the Word of God. Let me give you just two examples. The Bible, of course, is full of prophecy concerning the Jews. And as someone said, and I think I do agree, if you want an evidence for a God, just look at the Jewish people. They are without explanation, historically, apart from God. You can't explain 
the Jewish people. You can't explain their origin. You can't explain their history. You can't explain their present situation. It doesn't make any sense apart from the biblical revelation. But many, many, many prophecies in the Bible deal specifically with Israel, with their past at the time it was written, with their present situation, and then, of course, many of the prophecies dealing with their future. But let me give you just one quick example coming from Jesus himself. Luke 21, he said this. He said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When Jesus said this, Jerusalem was fully intact. And of course, you remember he was saying this in relation to the question that he was asked by his disciples regarding the temple and all of its magnificence. And Jesus prophesies that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies, the city is going to be leveled, and the Jews are going to be led away captive into all nations, and that's exactly what happened less than 40 years later. Exactly what happened. Predictive prophecy. And so we have prophecy concerning the Jews, but then, of course, we have prophecies concerning the Messiah himself. There are literally hundreds of prophecies regarding the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled them. Now, it is mathematically impossible that these predictions could have been fulfilled coincidentally. Now, there are 64 major prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. There are many others. Some say there are 300 prophecies that he fulfilled in his first coming. I tried to trace down the 300. I couldn't. Maybe there are. But for sure, there are 64 major prophecies that he fulfilled in his first coming. Now, if you just took eight of those prophecies and looked at the probability. What is the probability that somebody could come along and coincidentally fulfill eight of those prophecies? Prophecies like he would be a descendant of Abraham. He would be from the tribe of Judah. He would be from the family of David. He would be born in the city of Bethlehem. He would be born before the destruction of the second temple, or he would come before the destruction of the second temple. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, be betrayed by a friend, be sold for 30 pieces of silver, those kinds of prophecies. If, if you take those and just say, as some have sought to argue, well, you know, it was just all a coincidence. If you just took eight of the 64, what is the probability that one person could come along and just by coincidence fulfill these prophecies but not be the person that is prophesied? Well, Pastor Chuck used to use this illustration all the time, a long time ago. I haven't heard him use it in a long time, so I'm going to pull it out of the archives. But it's the silver dollar illustration. How many of you know that one? Okay, some of you do. Be patient. The rest of you, this is a great illustration. (laughs) But if you were to take 
enough silver dollars to cover the state of Texas three feet deep. And if you were to mark one of those silver dollars and somehow, you know, mix that thoroughly, all those silver dollars, if you were to take a person and blindfold them, spin them around, take the blindfold off, let them go, the chance that on their first attempt they would pick up that one marked silver dollar is the same chance that somebody could come along and coincidentally fulfill eight prophecies and not be the person that was prophesied. Now, remember, this is just eight. Now, when you double that to 16, it goes up exponentially and astronomically, and you end up, by the time you get to 64, it is literally a mathematical impossibility that anybody could have come and fulfilled these prophecies and not been the person that was prophesied. So the prophecies concerning Israel, the prophecies concerning the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled, these are the things that prove the biblical claim to inspiration. And so as we are moving now into our study of Genesis properly, and as we study, whether it's Sunday mornings or Sunday night or whatever night we're gathering, and as we're, we're here with our Bibles, we are here with absolute and total confidence that these are the words of God. These are God's words. These are not men's words. And they are without error, and they are authoritative, and they tell us how we are to live, how we are to conduct ourselves. We can have absolute confidence in that. I want to close by quoting from the great Victorian preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, and it's a string of quotations that I put together from Spurgeon regarding the Word of God. Listen to what he said. He said, if you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works by his word. I hold one single sentence out of God's word to be of more certainty and of more power than all the discoveries of all the learned men of all ages. I would rather speak five words out of this book than 50,000 words of the philosophers. Remember that our Bible is a blood-stained book. The blood of the martyrs, the translators, and the confessors is on the Bible. The doctrines which we preach are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. If the whole of us went to prison and to death for the preservation of a single sentence of Scripture we should be fully satisfied in making such a sacrifice. This man had the right view of the word of God. And may we have that same view. May we have that same passion, that same commitment to God's word, that same love for his word, because it's through his word that he does his work in our lives. It's through his word that he transforms us, as Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. 
For the month of August, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history by John Dixon. With all the violence, oppression, and bigotry that has been carried out in the name of Jesus throughout church history, many today are questioning if Christianity is actually good. In his book, Bullies and Saints, John Dixon takes a critical look at the history of the Christian church, both the horrific and the honorable. Whether you're a Christian or an atheist, you will understand Christian history with the help of historian John Dixon through a balanced and honest examination of both the good and evil of church history. If you've ever struggled with the atrocities that have been committed by the Christian church, then you need to get this book because the worst of church history is only half the story. The book Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history by John Dixon is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.